you have elementary age kids, we'd love to be a part of our Vine Kids time right out these side doors here. Likewise, if you have a uh, middle school age kiddo, or if you are a middle school age kiddo, fifth, sixth, seventh, somewhere in that general window, we would love for you to be a part of what we have going on out this side door. And right there in our back area, we have <coughs> stuff going on for our uh, middle school kids. So, well, we're glad you're here this morning. Uh, I would like to reiterate, if you are here for the first time, we're really, really honored and blessed that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. Uh, we consider it a, just an enormous privilege that you would spend Sunday morning with us, and we're glad you're here. I say this a lot, but we really only have two real goals for you while you're here on a Sunday morning, and that is that you would have an encounter with the risen Christ and that people would be nice to you. Like, that's the peak of everything we've got. It's not that we want to get you back, trick you into this thing, entertain you. Uh, it's just that we want you to meet Jesus, and we want people to be kind to you. And so our goal is to be really authentic in that process, and so we just try and let you know that what you see is what you get. So if you are here, man, we are, are really honored that you're here. You're stepping into a kind of a unique time because we are in the middle of a series that we've been exploring called Call to Life. It's a journey or a look through the book of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter is an interesting letter because it's written to a bunch of believers that are scattered all over Asia Minor. Uh, they're waking up to intense persecution. Life is really hard. And I'm not talking about like, yeah, life is kind of hard. I'm a little busy. Kids are stringing me out this way or whatever. I'm talking about like today might be a day that I die for saying I believe in Jesus hard. Facing famine and uh, poverty and struggle and loneliness, right? Life was really hard. And, uh, and Peter's writing to them not as a letter to tell them what to do, but more a letter of encouragement and a call to something bigger. That even in the middle of their suffering and struggle, that they can find hope, joy, and purpose in every single moment of life which really transfers to a lot of us and myself as a follower of Christ, which is, look, life is hard. Might be the understatement of the century, right? Like life is hard. No one really told you how difficult it was going to be to grow up and try and navigate the things that life throws at you. Loss and pain and hurt, right? People that might wound you, situations that are uncomfortable, work that is hard, finances that never balance out, kids that aren't easy to raise, like all of these things. Marriage is not what it looks like on the diamond commercials, right? It's hard. I mean, Tim's diamonds are fine, but like most of them. In fact, they heal marriages. Tim's, Lewis Jewelers, we heal marriage. No, um, but life's not that easy, right? It's just hard. And so when we look at First Peter, what Peter's doing is he's showing us in the middle of life and all of its struggles and difficulties, there's actually incredibly beautiful moments where we get to see Jesus and not only find hope and purpose, but live a life that is just worth living, right? That we're doing more than just trying to draw one more breath and exist, but we're called to thrive and have this glorious, joyful, amazing life, even when life is hard. And so that's kind of what we've been doing in First Peter. We've been exploring that over the past four weeks through the lens of suffering, suffering. And, and if you even go back way before Christmas, we're talking about suffering even at the hands of, of unjust masters or, or broken government. Difficulties in marriage, right? A woman that would suffer at the hands of an unbelieving husband. And we moved into this part of, the, of winter, moving into January, and the past few weeks we've talked about suffering in unjust relationships. Suffering at the hands of people when you are doing everything right and life still isn't going well. And then last week, Brandon tied it all together by kind of introducing how the gospel flows into this idea of suffering through this letter that Peter's kind of writing. What we're going to see this morning is that Peter's going to take this idea of the gospel and he's going to show us 
how we can find and see Jesus even in the middle of those difficult moments, where Christ is, how he has gone before us, and the promise that he is with us and that we are not alone. And we're going to see evidence of the gospel's movement even in those most difficult times. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in the first six verses um, today, and we're going to look at probably four or five uh, whys and hows of our suffering, right? We're in the middle of those hows and whys of our suffering that we're going to see Christ, the risen Savior, standing and walking with us, who has gone before us and walks with us and carries the weight of our suffering to show us his glory. So if you've got that, let's open it up. We're going to pray together, and then we are just going to, uh, to dive in it together. God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather here today. I thank you that, Lord, every single body that is gathered in this place is coming with something that we're dealing with. Some of those things may feel insurmountable. They may feel suffocating. Some of those things may be light. They may be just a little thorn in the side, but we're all dealing with stuff. We're all a little unsure on where to go or how to turn or what we do with this. Suffering takes different pictures at different times. For some of us, it just feels like we can never escape its weight in this season. And in some seasons, we walk through life and everything just seems to work. But one thing is certain, no matter what stage we're in, suffering is real. Life is hard. And truthfully, being a follower of Christ doesn't always make it easier. Sometimes following you and changing our worldview makes it harder. Turns a lot of things upside down. The gospel messes up our life. Makes us see people differently. It makes us see money differently. It makes us see the world differently. That's not always easy. It's beautiful, but it's not always easy. So this morning, Lord, what we ask is that you would show us yourself and your word. To reveal yourself to us as we open up your, your word in First Peter today. God, that you would teach our hearts something that maybe we just haven't seen before. Or maybe just that tiny little imprint of your, your hand on our heart. Take a moment in your own heart as, as you sit here, as we do each week, and just pray that God would, would teach you something. Not my words, of course, just the Lord's pressing something into your heart, meeting you where you are. Just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment as you sit here and just pray for someone else. Pray for the person that's around you or beside you, front or back. Maybe you know their name, maybe you don't. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a stranger. Just pray for them. We want to be a church that is always in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Be in the habit of praying that God would move in other people's lives. Pray that he would teach them this morning. God, your beauty is beyond compare. The truth is there is nothing that we will suffer through that you have not already walked through. There's nothing we will uh, engage in this life with that you have not overcome. You are victorious and you are glorious. And so, God, what we ask this morning is that as we talk about suffering and we begin to see you in it, God, that you would make yourself known to us and that we would find joy and beauty and purpose in each of these moments. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verse 1 through 6. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in the body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. 
For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So here's what Peter's doing. You've got to kind of imagine this scope of things we've talked about over the past, truthfully, eight weeks. You've got to kind of bump all the way back up before Christmas. He put in context this picture of suffering and struggle, all right? Now, it's hard for us because we look at two verses a week, three verses a week, four verses a week, but Peter's writing a letter that you can read literally in 12 minutes, right? So when you look at these things in succession and context, sometimes they make a little bit more sense. We stretch them out. So you've got to be able to reach back and pull them in. So if you look at the whole context of suffering, right, at the hands of governments, at the hands of abusive masters, at the hands of unjust relationships, of, of people that are, that are treating you wrong or hurting you even when you're doing right. When you put all these things, things, these things in succession, well, Peter is essentially getting to a point now is he's going to say, listen, you are not suffering unjustly. In fact, what I'm going to show you in these past few verses I've explained to you is that Jesus, your Savior, is actually right in the middle of your suffering. And for the believer, he's going to take the weight of suffering and shift it from the follower of Christ to the Savior. And so what Peter's going to do in these how and whys in these few verses, he's going to show us that not only is Jesus in our suffering, but he has gone before us in our suffering, and he carries the weight. All right, so we're going to look at those pieces, and he kind of does it verse by verse. And the first thing he does is by laying it out by saying this, listen, I want you to know that Christ suffered first. You are not alone and so arm yourself with his attitude. The first part of verse 4 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself with the same attitude. So, so Peter sets it up by saying, remember this, Jesus suffered first. Right? He suffered in the body. We know that. We've read the last account of Jesus' life. We've actually seen how he walked with three years of his earthly ministry. We watched what unfolded with the betrayal and the sham of a trial and the beating and the mockery and the abandonment of those that he cared about. For the lies, for the spit, for the abuse, we watch Jesus suffer in his earthly body. And so Peter starts off by saying, I want you to remember this, because when you suffering first and you're not suffering alone. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago, or maybe more than that, but one of the most difficult parts of suffering is the idea that sometimes we feel lonely. We look around us and everybody else seems to have it together. Their life does not seem to be as hard, Right? Their life seems to be a picture of something that is really what I want. Their kids are great, right? They hold hands all the time. They eat dinner together. They go to Disney five times a year. I think they live there. Their life seems to be great, and I'm the only struggling. I'm the only one that's got attention to my marriage I don't have to resolve. Only one that can't make our financial ends meet. I'm the only one whose boss is a complete jerk. And we feel alone. And there are a lot of lies that are brewed in the chamber of loneliness. When we feel alone, we begin to live in a place of bitterness and resentment, and it's poison to the soul. But one of the incredible things, right, about the nature of God, and his very nature, is that he is with us. God Emmanuel, God with us, right? So not only do we know that, 
that God promises that, which is amazing in and of itself. But he also sent his son to walk the road of suffering so that no matter what you walk through, we have a Savior that has experienced and walked it. And so when he says that you are not alone, that Jesus suffered in the body, he's saying, listen, you are walking through nothing that the Savior of your life has not already walked through and will walk through with you. So because of that, arm yourself with his attitude. So here comes suffering, right? It's on our doorstep. Life is hard. Life has got its struggles. Life has it. It's whatever, right? What Peter's saying is don't just put on a smile. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying arm yourself with the attitude of Jesus who walked through suffering before you and for you. So I started thinking, right, of course, what is the attitude that Jesus has in suffering, right? Is he just like everything's going to be great, sunshine and rainbows all the time? Like what is the attitude Christ carries into his suffering? And if you read any of the last few hours or days in life of Christ, you will come face to face with two incredible realities of how Jesus faced his bodily suffering. First, he faced it with obedience, and second, he faced it with the idea of glory to the Father. That's it. There's not a lot of other pieces. He wasn't trying to prove the Pharisees wrong. He wasn't trying to get vengeance for those that had talked against him. He wasn't trying to show everybody else up. He wasn't trying to get one more speech in or prove one more point or humiliate one more person that put him down two and a half years prior. None of that. His entire existence and his suffering was first to be obedient, right? You remember Gethsemane in the garden, right? As he's crying out to the Father, knowing full well what's about to come, that all of the people in his life were going to abandon him and run for the hills. And he knew what he was walking into. The trial, the beatings, the abandonment, the abuse, the betrayal, the ultimate dying for the sin of humanity. Father, if there is any other way, will you take this cup from me? Jesus pleads with the Father. Of course, coming to the statement, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, Jesus driving and suffering was obedience to the Father. Not what I want. But coupled with that obedience was not just like, God, whatever you want. It was really a God, whatever you want that I can do to bring glory to you. If you remember John 17, we preached through that years ago. And we came to that little prayer right at the end of, of Jesus' sort of time with the disciples in the upper room as he prays for himself and he prays for other believers and he prays for the disciples. And he says something really powerful. He says, Father, what I need you to do is glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. That's how he starts that prayer off. Everything that I'm about to walk through, the weight that I'm about to carry, the hill I'm about to walk, the cross I literally am going to shoulder, glorify me so that I may just glorify you. Everything in Jesus' suffering existence was to glorify the Father. So if that's the attitude that Christ has, then of course what that means is that if we're to arm ourselves, as he says in verse 1, with the attitude of Christ, then what we do is we take a physical armament of obedience and glory to the Father. Which is the opposite of everything that you and I long for when we suffer. Because we want pity, we want empathy, we want sympathy, and then we want it all to go away. That is how we handle suffering. We want people to look around us, especially our spouses or those people we know the best, and be like, I'm so sorry you're walking through this. Like, just give me a little bit of that, right? We, wanna, we want people around us to see it and to feel it. We want that sympathy. We want them to know we're walking through it. We want the empathy. We want to make it known. And then we all want it to go away. Whatever it takes to take this suffering and get it out. I don't actually really care if it's resolved. I just don't want to walk through this anymore. Because the end goal for most of us in the middle of suffering is just relief. That's the attitude we arm ourselves with. What is it going to take for me 
to get out of this. Lord, and our prayers begin with, Lord, take this from me. Lord, remove this from me. God, solve this for me. God, bring me more money. God, bring me another husband, whatever, right? A better, different change, whatever. Just do something different. That's what our prayers are geared towards, alleviation of suffering. Jesus' attitude and prayers were geared towards, if I'm suffering, I want to be obedient in it, and I want to glorify you with my actions, words, and life. If we're arming ourselves with the attitude of Christ, right, think about the change in heart that says, okay, I'm suffering, and this is awful, and I hate it, it's hard. But if I'm going to walk through it, I know that Jesus has walked through it for me and with me. And his attitude was to be obedient to the Father and to bring him glory. And so, God, what I'm going to try and do with everything that wraps up in me is as long as I'm walking through this, I want to do it in obedience to you, which means if you're leading, I'm following. And I want to do it with an attitude that says, use me to bring you glory, which means every word, every action, everything that I say, I want to honor you with. I don't want to complain. I don't want to be resentful and bitter and let poison seep into my soul. I don't want to make sort of passive-aggressive Facebook posts to my ex. I want to honor you with everything that I say and do. Right? I want to be obedient, and I want to be about your glory. We arm ourselves with that. Listen to how Peter says, you literally have to take it up. Like if you arm yourself with a weapon of some kind, it's you are preparing for what is coming with it. Meaning, I know this is going to be hard, and I'm going to have to make a choice on how I approach the suffering in my life. I can be bitter and resentful and angry. I can be mad that nobody else has to walk through this. I can be mad that I'm still dealing with this. Or I can say, God, I'm going to arm myself with a different attitude. And this is the promise of the Christ follower, right? That Jesus didn't just say, do it. He demonstrated it. He said, you're walking through nothing I haven't already walked through before you and for you. And I will now walk alongside of you. So the first thing that Peter shows us in the midst of this is that you are not alone. Christ suffered first, and we are to arm ourselves with his attitude. Look at the second part of verse 1. Because he who has suffered in the body is done with sin. Now what that means is not that if you've suffered and that you understand that you've suffered and that you've armed yourself with Christ's attitude, that you will no longer sin. It's not what Peter's saying, right? We all know that even those of us that have committed our life fully to Christ, like sin is very much still a part of who we are. He said, however, if you do arm yourself with the attitude of Christ, right, you are done with sin. What he means is you're making a powerful proclamation. I'm making a powerful proclamation when I arm myself with, sin, with, uh, with the attitude of Christ that I am done with the sinful part of my suffering that says this is about me, and I can be bitter, and I can be resentful, and I can be mopey, and I can be upset, and I can be selfish in it, and I can be degrading to people, and I can passively aggressive pass this on to the people around me. Because the two attitudes don't coexist. You cannot obediently arm yourself with the attitude of Christ, being obedient to follow him and glory to the Father, and still have room for the selfishness that most of us live when it comes to suffering. The two do not coexist. One pushes out the other. And if we truly arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ, then there is no room for sin. And I'm not talking about just behavioral sin. I'm talking about the sin that comes with the weight of suffering. The sin that says, this is about me. And I want what's due mine. And I deserve something else. The truth is you don't. You don't deserve something else. We all deserve, and we'll talk about God's wrath, but God is incredible grace and goodness 
does not treat us as we deserve. Don't ask God what you deserve. So he says, when you arm yourself with the attitude of Christ, you're done with sin. There's no room for it. So if you wonder in your struggles, right, how your heart is still torn and how you just feel a lack of rest, a lack of peace, it's because the two things in your life are trying to coexist. I want to be obedient to the Father. I want to have the attitude of Christ. I want to be for his glory, but I'm still also all about me. They don't coexist. When you truly arm yourself with the attitude of Christ, there is no room for sin. There's no room for it because where's your concentration at? Where's your energy at? Where's your heart at? Obedience, glorifying the Father. And if you are with everything you have working to glorify the Lord, there is no way that you can be working to glorify you. So he says, listen, you're not alone. Christ suffered for you and before you. Arm yourself with his attitude and there will be no room for sin. He goes on to say this. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life evil uh, for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. So when we arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ, we physically and mentally take it up, right? We don't have room for sin. And the third thing that he says here is that we can leave the past in the past. And I find this really powerful, right? He says, here's a result. As a result, he connects that. As a result of arming yourself with the attitude of Christ, I mean, as a byproduct, do not live the rest of your earthly life for evil human desires, but for the will of God. You've spent enough time there. And then he makes this incredible list, right, of just detestable human behaviors. Debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing. Don't let me catch you guys carousing around. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Detestable, idolatry. You know what all those things have in common? I know you're sitting here going, well, I haven't engaged in any of those things. Um, you know what they all really have in common? It's just self-pleasure. It's just the me. Every one of those things is about something that would be pleasing to me from a worldly standpoint, right? Like just pursuing what gives you pleasure. In other words, if it feels good, do it. That's what the world says, right? The world sends us on a path that just says, hey, look, if it's right for you, it's right. If it feels good, feels good. No one should take that right from you, which, of course, is so contrary to what it means to follow Jesus, that everything is not about you or your pleasure, that if we're truly seeking God's glory, then it's actually the opposite of what pleases me. What Peter said, or what Peter's saying is this. He says, when you arm yourself with the attitude of Christ, you can leave the past in the past. Two main things here, right, in that idea. First, you can leave it in the past because it's no longer who you are. As a follower of Christ, we know this. We've talked about this at length. When you give your life to Jesus, when you submit and trust him, the Bible tells us you are made completely new. And that means that that person that you were, you no longer are. Right? That is not who you are. It does not define you anymore. The Bible tells you are a brand new, incredible creation that you have made new, that you are no longer defined by your worst mistake. You have been made renewed. You don't have to go back there and keep punishing yourself over and over for the things that you've done because Christ has set you free. Right? So you can let go of the past in that way. But you also get to let go of it because he says, look, you've spent enough time there. Now, he's talking to a whole bunch of people. And a lot of these people will read that and think, man, I spent 15 years of my life in that list of activities. A lot of us in here may be able to identify with that. 
I spent X number of years in my life doing the things that that list says, debauchery, evil, idolatry, whatever it is, self-pleasure. But he's also writing to a bunch of people that maybe just spent one night there. And he said, no matter how long it's been, you've spent enough time in the past. Which means you don't have to have some crazy story of 15 years of wild living in order to be delivered from that. The reality is that all of us on some level have spent time trying to please ourselves. And no matter what that distance is, whether you're 18 or whether you're 88, you spend enough time there, you don't have to go back. And a lot of us go back to the past, not necessarily in behavior, but in thought and in regret or in desire. We let our minds race that road. We either don't free ourselves from it or sometimes we even wish we could go back. I would do it all different. And I would go crazy or whatever, right? Well, Peter says when you arm yourself with the attitude of Christ, you can leave the past in the past. You're not slave to it anymore. Now, there's one thing that's been a trapping in my own heart. It's the fact that I am constantly, right, constantly, continually thinking about all the things that I have done that have hurt or let other people down. Part of arming yourself with the attitude of Christ and suffering is saying, don't let the enemy use those as a tool to beat you down. Look, you've spent enough time in the past. That's not who you are. So quit living there. Quit living there. Most of my conversations with people when we talk about kind of hurt and struggle or encounter or any kind of those things are dealing with the ideas that I am having a hard time living into who Christ says I am because I know who I am. Believing the identity that he's given you and leaving your past, past. And sometimes past is literally last night. It's not always 15 years ago. So he says, look, Christ suffered first. You are not alone. Arm yourself with his attitude. Literally take it on you. And when you do that, right, when you arm yourself with his attitude, which is the desire to live obediently, the desire to bring the Lord glory, right, there is no room for sin because those two things can't coexist. Your self-pleasure, your desires, trying to live obediently on the Lord, and you can leave the past in the past. You can literally just leave it there. Fourth thing he says is this. He goes on to say, look, they, the people, the world, he gets on the back end of that uh, kind of carousing train. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. So what's the world going to say when all of a sudden you decide to not live in that category of self-pleasure? Of I'm going to do whatever it is that feels right. When you no longer engage in the things on this list that aren't always just there, but slander or gossip or whatever it is. When you decide that that's no longer how you're going to live, what will the world around you do that is steeped in the idea of self-pleasure? They won't get it. They will actually think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the dissipation. Why are you no longer talking about people with us? Why are we no longer gossiping on our, our guys or girls' nights out? Like, why is this something you're not doing? Why are you not drinking with us like this? Or why are you not gauging in this? Or why are you not just jumping into our pity party? They think it's strange because they won't get it. The world will not understand it. The scripture is full of this concept that the world will not understand the things of God. And when you begin to give your life over and you surrender and exchange your self-pleasure or your self-pity even 
the middle of your suffering, the world won't get it. Because what does the world tell you to do when you're suffering? If you're suffering and struggling, you need to do something for you. If you're having a hard time, you need to take time out for yourself and please yourself. That's what the world will tell you to do. Of course, what Jesus says is actually what you need to do is just say, God, how can I please and honor you? Because, of course, pleasure is fleeting, right? So he says, look, they're not going to get it. And when they don't get it, guess what the world's going to do? They will heap abuse on you. So what Jesus basically says is, look, if you tell people that you're following me and that you're trying to live obediently and that you're for my glory and you're doing things differently, life's going to get harder. Sorry. Like that's basically what he's saying. Peter's going, following Christ does not make life easier. The world is actually not going to get it. And when they don't get it, they're going to turn on you like that. Right? They're going to turn on you. They're going to heap abuse on you. He says this, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So here's what Peter's saying. Listen, they're going to have to pay their own account. In other words, it's not your job to repay their abuse for abuse. Talked about this two weeks ago. Your job is not to repay evil for evil, insult for insult. Your job is not to get vengeance, to get back, to be passive aggressive or mean or shape whatever it is in your text message, your social media posts or whatever it is to get back at people to make sure they understand that they're going to get theirs. Even though that's what we want, right? We want justice, and we want it now. And when you do something against me or against my family, I sure am going to come back at you and make sure that you know. Our marriages are filled with this garbage. You hurt me the most. I know how to hurt you back. And in creeps resentment and bitterness, the poison of the soul. But guess what? Peter says it's not your job. It's not your job. They will stand in judgment to God the same way that you will. And we looked at this two weeks ago. We said, vengeance is the Lord's, right? So let God be God. In fact, Peter two weeks ago said, in fact, I want you to repay evil with blessing. Right? See how hard that is? So he says, it's not your job. In other words, when you arm yourself with the attitude of Christ, you don't have to worry about what the world says because it has no power over you. No power. Yeah, they may be able to make some things crummy in the here and now, but God makes them victorious and wonderful in the eternity. And when we follow him obediently, God will always take what man has meant for harm and turn it into good. Always. Even think about the life of Christ. What did, what did humanity try and do? Tried to destroy Jesus. What did God do? He turned that into the greatest redemptive story in all of human history. God takes the evil workings of humanity and he brings them for his glory. So we've got this picture, right? God, we're not alone. Christ suffered first. Um, we're called literally to arm ourselves with his attitude. When we do that, right, there's no room for sin. We can leave the past in the past. And when we do that, we don't have to worry about what the world says because truthfully, it doesn't matter. They have no power over you. The people in your life that are the most harmed don't have power. You are subject only to Christ. And then he wraps all this up to say, basically, here's why the gospel is preached. This is what Peter says. He says, for this is the reason the gospel is preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the flesh. A little bit confusing in the way that it's worded, but basically what Peter's saying is this. This is why the gospel is preached even to those that were before you that are now dead. He's not saying there's gospels preached to those that are dead. 
as in Persia. He's saying, those that have gone before you have heard the gospel and have now died. This is why the gospel has been preached to those that have gone before you, to you, and to those now. Because there is a great and terrible day of reckoning that is coming. There is a day of judgment that if you read scripture, is going to happen. That we are all going to stand and account for our behavior, for our actions, for our thoughts before Almighty God. Now, nobody likes to talk about it because you don't walk out of a Sunday sermon feeling great when you talk about the wrath and vengeance of God, right? That doesn't bring anybody back. You never see it on the marquee, right? Hey, today, sin and the sinful sinner, join us. <laughs> Donuts afterward or whatever. You don't see it. But the truth is, there is a day of reckoning, a day of wrath and justice, when we all stand before Almighty God and be held, be held accountable for our actions. We'll be judged according to the actions of man, but those that have given their lives and surrender and trust to Jesus Christ will be able to live according to the Spirit, meaning simply put, that as a follower of Christ, when you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you surrender over to Him, you stand with confidence on the day of judgment because you have been bought and set free by the goodness and grace of God. So that in your suffering, you're not suffering in vain. You're suffering because Christ went for you and with you. And you are filled with the Holy Spirit. So on that great day of judgment, when all the world and those evil masters and, and those terrible governments and those people that were awful and the people that are in all the lists that we just read, drunkenness, orgies, debauchery, all those kind of things, when they stand before a count, you do not have to be afraid. But with confidence you stand before God saying, I did nothing but you did everything. And that I put my hope and faith in Jesus and that I am living according to the Spirit of God. And I've been set free. Paul talks about it as this great confidence. That on that day, we're not afraid. We have this great confidence and gratitude that just says, because of Jesus, I am not held to who I was. How does that fit in suffering? Well, it fits in suffering incredibly well because what it means is there will be a day where there will be no more suffering. There will be a day we stand before the Lord, right? And he vindicates all of that and we are made completely new in him. And the temporary trappings and destruction of this world will be gone. And that our suffering would not have been in vain. Right? But he, as Paul says, who stands firm to the end will be saved. I don't have a lot of answers for the why of all this. Why those things happen to some and not to others. Why some walk through difficulties that seem more challenging than others. Why loss and hurt and pain and all those things happen. I don't have answers for all that. But what I do know is that Jesus tells us that that will happen. And he never tells us that following him will make it easier. Scripture never points to the fact that if we just trust in Jesus, life gets great and $100 bills rain from the sky. Rainbows shine up in the morning when we wake and bubble machines shower us to sleep. Doesn't happen. But what he does tell us is in the middle of a life that is hard, we are not alone. Not only has he gone before us, but he has walked with us and walk through everything that we could possibly experience. And he's a savior that knows. And not only that, but he's given us an example. To say, I didn't just tell you what to do, but I showed you. Follow me, live in obedience, and try and glorify the Father. And when you do, you're going to be free from several things. You're going to be free from the fact that there's no more room for self-pity and resentment and sin. When you're chasing Jesus like that, when you're pressing into the idea that you want to glorify the Father, there's no room for self-glory. There's no room for self-pity. So you get to be free from that. You get to let go of the past. You don't have to live there. You've been there long enough. 
whether it's one night or 15 years. We spend enough time in that. Be done. You're new, right? Don't let that go. You also get the victory of being able to say, the world has no power over me. Like, I'm tired of giving them power that God says they don't have. I'm tired of giving the people around me power that's not theirs to keep or give. They'll stand judgment the same way that I will. It's not my job to heap it on them or to make sure they feel it or to get back. Revenge is not mine. Vengeance is not mine. Passive aggressive words are not mine. I want to honor the Lord. So I'll repay insult with blessing even in the middle of my suffering. And then one day we'll all stand before the Lord. And I have confidence on that day that when I stand before the Lord, though judged, right, in the body, I'll be free because of Christ. Deep and true and real comfort. So here's what we walk away with. I don't know what life's going to hand you today. I don't know what you're walking in, what kind of suffering you're standing in. But I will tell you this. You're not alone. Christ has gone before you. Arm yourself with his attitude, and you'll be set free. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. That you are a God who is just relentlessly good. Just so good. That even in the middle of what we might consider just the weight of the world, God, you have walked it. You have demonstrated how to walk it, and you lead us and walk with us. That we may arm ourselves with your attitude of obedience. Arm ourselves, Lord, with the desire to make the Father glorified in our lives. That it would push out the other sin. That it would let us let go of the past and not be afraid of people. They have no power. You are the ultimate authority. And that God, ultimately, when we stand before you on that great and terrifying day of reckoning, we stand with confidence. And those of us here today, Lord, that may not know you, may not have a relationship with you, may not know the confidence of putting their faith and hope in Christ, Lord, my prayer is they would just come down and visit with me or Brandon about it and just say, I want to know Jesus. I want to be confident. I want to release my soul. I want to be saved. And that God, they might experience the goodness and the grace that comes with a relationship that is given fully to Christ. So, Lord, as we close our time in worship, what I do pray right now is that we begin by transferring all the glory that we want to ascribe to ourselves to you. And just be glorified. The Lord, you are in all and through all, and you get our worship. To the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's stand.